good evening and welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, and it is my pleasure to be bringing you this show now in its eighth year. Thank you all for listening, for sending your show ideas, your comments, and I really appreciate your monetary support to help keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air. Tonight, our musical opening was Arms of the Mother by the very talented Abigail Spinner McBride. Please check out her work. And I'm very excited to be offering part two of my show's Feminist Fairy Tales and Goddess Mythology Trilogy, which was on uh, last week and tonight and next week. It was inspired by movies like Maleficent, Avatar, Brave, Frozen, and maybe you remember Dangerous Beauty. I thought we should get back to the oldies but goodies and give them a second look. What do they teach us? And in the words of uh, Charles DeLint of The Onion Girl, he's quoted to say, there are times when people need stories more than they need nourishment because the stories feed something deeper than the needs of the body. So let's get around to giving ourselves permission to take a look at the stories, to make our own interpretations, and provide especially the female gender with new stories instead of just the patriarchal ones that spawn male authority, domination, and leadership. If you missed last week, go back in the archives and enjoy my conversation with foremother Charlene Spretnak as we discuss the pre-patriarchal or pre-classical myths of Greece from her older book, Lost Goddesses of Early Greece. We learned the real story of Gaia and Pandora, Demeter, and Persephone. So once again, I invite you to sit back with a cup of tea or a glass of wine as I chat tonight with beloved foremother Barbara Walker. We'll be reading one or two of her stories from feminist fairy tales, also from her newest books, Belief and Unbelief, and also Man-Made God. Um, And... And one of, uh, well, in her new, her newest book, Belief and Unbelief, it's going to be coming out next month, uh, put out by Humanist Press. And uh, one of the chapters, I think, will be of particular interest to, uh, to our listeners called Family and the Future. Then in our final week, Lenny Schneer is with me. Lenny is the late Merlin Stone's lifelong partner. Lenny has a book coming out about their lives together, and it's my pleasure to have him on the show and discuss Merlin's work. Uh, particularly when God was a woman. Uh, She and Rhian Eisler were just two of the instrumental foremothers that uh, started me out on this path. So I'm excited to be bringing you uh, Lenny to shed some light on um, uh, his life with Merlin. And uh, I'll share some of her writings and perhaps, uh, if we have time, discuss her examination of the Garden of Eden myth. But before we get started tonight, oh my goddess, for the next few days, my publisher has told me that Goddess Calling... Uh, The new book uh, of mine that came out in uh, March of this year, well, it's available on Amazon at a special price of $2.99. I honestly don't understand how they do that. But if you've been waiting to buy it and you've been short on funds, you just as well take advantage of the offer. I'd rather see you have it than not. And uh, stay tuned in later, and uh, I'll tell you about the trip I'm leading in May uh, of uh, next year for uh, 16 days to Turkey 
with my good friend uh, and archaeologist, Dr. James Riedfeld himself. Uh, he's a religion scholar and expert on Artemis of Ephesus. Uh, and there'll be more about ordering the new anthology coming out in November with the contribution of guests who have been on this very radio show, including, yes, Charlene Spretnak and Barbara Walker. Um, and the book is also titled, uh, very similar as the show, uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. So without further delay, because we have a lot to fit in tonight, and I don't want to cut that short, um, I have with us someone whose books I know are on your shelves, or they certainly should be, the books of uh, foremother Barbara Walker. And if you, you're new to all of this, if you're new to Barbara, please listen to her bio. Barbara Walker is the author of 25 books and numerous articles on comparative religion, feminism, history, mythology, symbolism, mineral lore, the tarot, the I Ching, a collection of original feminist fairy tales, an autobiography, a novel, and two collections of humanist essays, Man-Made God, and Belief and Unbelief. Her 1,100-page Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets has been continuously in print since 1983 and was named Book of the Year by the London Times. She has received the Humanist Heroine of the Year Award from the American Humanist Association, the Women Making Herstory Award from New Jersey Now, and the Olympia Brown Award from the Unitarian Universalist Association. She's also listed in that prestigious publication, Who's Who in Hell? As an artist, she created 78 original paintings for the Barbara Walker Tarot deck and 60 more, 64 more for her I Ching of the Goddess card deck, both published with companion books, and composed all the illustrations for her Woman's Dictionary of Symbols and Sacred Objects. She's also worked as a professional knitwear designer and her books on knitting patterns or American classics. She personally invested more than a 1,000 original pattern stitches, more than any other single person known to history, and created a new technique that she named mosaic knitting. A Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, she's worked as a journalist, dance teacher, painter, designer, workshop leader, and mentor of women's spirituality groups, as well as a wife and mother, and has given talks for humanist, Unitarian, and free thinker organizations. And as I've already said, I am very glad to have her as a contributor to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Conversations to Reshape Our World. Barbara, you know, whenever I read your bio, um, oh, welcome to the show. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> whenever I read your bio, I am I am utterly amazed at how much you have managed to fit into your life. I mean, you literally have five lifetimes there in that bio. <laughs> I've been busy, yes, I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you told me once on a previous show, um, I don't think you watch television. Uh, is that is that the key, you think? Well, actually, our television set broke at some point during my knitting career, and I never got around to fixing it for six years. Wow. So I got a lot done in those six years. <laughs> I bet, I bet, wow. Well, um, I want to uh, read some of the um, some of the comments from uh, Peter Bycroft. Uh, he is a secular humanist 
uh, based in Noosa, who specializes in the history of Christianity and the origin of biblical myths. Um, I was so impressed with his review um, of your book, Man-Made God, I wanted to uh, share it with listeners. Uh, Just some of the highlights here. Uh, He says, "This uh, this is the book that establishes her, you, Barbara, as one of the greatest scholars and erudite communicators about the origin and the global domination of Christian mythology. It's, it is essentially a collection of previously published essays, so there's a small amount of repetition in some chapters, but it is easy to choose a topic and selectively read the appropriate chapter. The book is astounding in its coverage, detailed in its analysis, comprehensive in its expose of the many recurrent religious themes and dogmas promoted since antiquity. Walker is not a militant atheist. She is methodical, measured, and entertaining in progressively dealing with and dismissing as fiction the majority of Christian beliefs, including whether Christ actually ever existed. There have certainly been many recent publications about atheism, rationality, concepts of God, the history of Jesus, the errors, contradictions, and fabrications in the Bible, but Walker's book rises well above all all of these because of its evidence uh, it's evidence-based and it's comprehensive and informed coverage. Man-made God will go down in history as the turning point for a rational understanding of humanity and how humans have developed and hybridized fanciful and often oppressive religious dogma over time. Wow. Wow. When you read that, you must have just um, been floating on a cloud. Oh, that's very pleasant. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, um, so man-made God. Uh, that's uh, that came out in 2010. Stellar House uh, Publishing. Um, you have a, a a piece in there on sexism. I believe um, you were going to uh, read uh, for our listeners, and then we'll get into the fairy tales and uh, uh, and, and the new book, Belief and um, Unbelief. Is, does that sound okay to you? Do you want the sexism article first or the fairy tale? Um, Since you're doing well, fairy tales, we probably should do that one first. All right, all right. Let's 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 go ahead and do that. Um, let me share first uh, what's uh, written inside the, the cover of your book, Feminist Fairy Tales. This goes back, I think you wrote this back in the, the middle 90s. Um, mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? It, what what inspired you, Barbara? Um, just the the dearth of um, stuff out there that uh, you know that that was empowering for women, or what was well, it? Well, it it occurred to me that fairy tales are very male oriented because the hero always rescues the poor, weak, helpless female protagonist. The princess can't do anything for herself. The prince has to come along and rescue her. You know, the the women in fairy tales are very uh, non-essential. Right, right. They're they're the they're the prize, but they don't do anything. So I right. thought I would write some fairy tales in which the women actually did something, and turned out to be the heroines instead of the prize. There you go. And, well, you know what? You will want to. If you well, if you know, if you can break away, take a take a break now that your your newest book, Belief and Unbelief, is is actually about ready to hit the shelves, 
and go see some of those movies that I mentioned, uh, Maleficent, uh, Frozen, Brave, because you know what? Things are shifting, uh, and the hero isn't always the fella in the story anymore. I think you'll be pleasantly right. surprised. <laughs> um, so the, so the um, inside flap of feminist fairy tale says, uh, prominent feminist author Barbara Walker has revamped, retold, and infused with new life some of your favorite classic fairy tales. No longer are women submissive, helpless creatures in need of redemption through the princely male. Instead, they are vibrantly alive, strong women who take fate into their own hands. And um, you have wonderful stories here. You have uh, Barbie doll. You have Cinder uh, Cinder Hell, which uh, sounds really interesting, too. Uh, Cinder Hell was born to a priestess of the goddess of the underworld, witnesses the death of goddess worship, and with the help of the mother spirit, revives temples of the goddess when she becomes the prince's beloved. And But um, I, I think you had a favorite, though, you, you wanted to read. Well, there's a fairly short one based on the tale of the emperor's new clothes. I'm sure everyone remembers that one, where the emperor was fooled into thinking he had new clothes when he had nothing. But um, what I say in the introduction to this story is, in Anderson's tale of the emperor's new clothes, every character is male, ignoring centuries of female intimacy with all matters of dress and fabric arts. This version, my version, makes all the important characters female, and a resulting surprise ending that allows the two protagonists to stay alive and even to prosper. The Empress is credited with more common sense than the Emperor, and she shows a better grasp of how to earn the loyalty of her subjects. So this is how the tale goes. Okay. Once upon a time, during the reign of the last Empress of Cathay, two clever sisters who were dressmakers devised a plan to make themselves rich. They pretended to have the world's most exquisite and expensive silk, to which they attributed the magical power of distinguishing between virtuous and sinful people. They said the magic silk couldn't be seen or felt by people whose consciences bore any burden of guilt or immorality, whereas innocent folk could perceive it clearly. They sold for enormous sums many empty bolts to foolish customers who dared not admit that they could see nothing on them. <laughs> Word of the magic silk eventually came to the ears of the empress herself, just as she was planning a great procession in honor of her own birthday. She insisted that she must have new clothes made for the occasion out of this wonderful material. Not the least of its advantages, thought the empress, was its capacity to sort out the blameless from the dishonest among her own courtiers. She sent for the two dressmakers, promising them a reward of riches beyond their wildest dreams. The younger sister was frightened by the summons to the imperial imperial court. We'll be discovered, arrested, and executed, she said. This is the end of the game and the end of us. Why did I let you talk me into this scam in the first place? Stop whining, the older sister snapped. We'll get away with it, I tell you, if we don't lose our nerve. Our fortune is made forever if we succeed in dressing the empress in her birthday suit. (laughs) 
just be bold and remember they're not going to be able to admit that they can't see it. But the court is full of the empire's best and wisest, wailed the younger sister. Nobles, scientists, seers, legislators, educated people. Surely we can't pull the wool or silk over their eyes. The elder sister stickered. Trust me, they're the worst hypocrites of all, she said. Relax, sister, we'll get away with it. After we've made our fortune, we'll leave the country and live in luxury as far away from here as we can get. So they traveled to the imperial, imperial, imperial court. The elder sister tried to keep up her younger sister's spirits by reminding her of the good life that would be theirs. Fine clothes, the servants, the parties, the best food and wine, the eager suitors. On their arrival, they were ushered immediately into the presence of the empress, who demanded to see the magic silk at once. The sisters showed several empty bolts and made a great pantomime of unrolling yards of material at the empress's feet. Look at the golden shimmer of that one, your imperial majesty, said the elder sister. Light as a cloud it is, too. You can hardly feel it on your skin. And this one, did you ever see such a rich violet shade in all your life? And such exquisite patterns like spider silk woven by fairies. All the courtiers proceeded to ooh and ah, pretending to see and feel the delicate silk. Each one was secretly appalled to find it indistinguishable from empty air and began to think back over his or her past crimes with unaccustomed shame and fear of discovery. The empress herself was much chagrined at her own inability to see the magic silk. She smiled and said nothing inwardly recalling various immoralities of her past and some of the ruthless measures she had been forced to take to secure her position on the throne. She looked around the audience chamber and saw all her attendants and counselors loudly exclaiming over the beauty of the magic silk. Am I the only evildoer here, she thought nervously. They must never know. In subsequent weeks, the two dressmakers were installed in a gorgeous suite with a fully appointed workroom and were given everything they requested. They pretended to be sewing industriously day after day. They gave the empress several fittings. In pantomime, the sisters dressed her in undergarments that they praised as the world's most beautiful, then in a golden gown that they said shone as brightly as the sun and then in a cloak that they claimed was fit for a goddess. All the while, the empress stood naked while her courtiers looked on and murmured flatteringly about the dazzling loveliness of her clothes. Seeing how easily they had bamboozled the courtiers and even the empress herself, the younger sister began to feel that their deception might succeed after all. Yet she was apprehensive. When the great day of the procession dawned clear and fine, she suffered a sudden failure of nerve. She clutched her sister's arm. We can't do it, she cried. We've got to run away right now. What do you mean we can't do it, said the elder. Don't quit on me now, little one. We're almost home free. Don't you want to live in luxury for the rest of your life? Yes, but I especially want there to be a rest of my life, even if it's not luxurious said the younger sister. 
listen, she's going to go out there in broad daylight in front of thousands of people and parade around without a stitch on. Nothing that humiliating has ever happened to an empress. Don't you understand? Somebody in the crowd is sure to see the truth, and we'll be drawn and quartered before tomorrow's sunrise. We've gotten away with it so far, haven't we, said her sister. Hang on, everything will be all right. Guilt is universal. There's not a person in the whole empire who doesn't have a secret shame. Yes, I know. I have one myself, said the younger sister gloomily. But she swallowed her fears and went with her sister to the empress's apartment to dress her for the great occasion. While pretending to put on the clothes, the elder sister pantomimed a thousand careful adjustments. Your imperial majesty should remember to hold her head high so as not to crumple this dainty stand-up collar, she said. And the train must be swept to one side when your imperial majesty takes a turn. Like this, said the empress, turning. Oh, that's exactly right, your magnificence, cried the dressmaker. You honor us by wearing our clothes with such grace. The procession started out with much rolling of drums and blaring of trumpets, preceded by heralds, knights, and courtiers in their most splendid costumes, the empress walked forth into the sunlight, clothed with nothing but her dignity. Her assembled subjects raised a great cry of admiration and homage, its volume only increased by their anxiety to conceal their surprise. The procession had passed nearly all of its appointed route when a small child peeped out from behind her mother's skirts to see the empress pass by. During a pause in the imperial music, the child's voice rose loud and shrill into the clear morning air. But she's naked! Mommy, the empress is naked! The empress turned her head abruptly toward the sound and made a small gesture. The procession halted immediately. Guardsmen seized both the child and the mother and brought them before the empress. What did you say, little girl? the empress asked. You're naked, the child replied, while her mother wrung her hands and writhed with fear. Please forgive her, your imperial majesty, the mother cried. She's only a baby. She doesn't know what she's saying. On the contrary, said the empress, we think she knows very well what she's saying. She is too young to have crimes to repent. Guard, let them go and give us your cloak. Weeping with relief, the mother fell on her knees to thank the empress for her mercy, but the empress paid little attention to her. Swathed in a guardsman's cloak, she finished the processional route and returned to her palace. The dressmakers were arrested at once and dragged in chains to the throne room. You two have diddled us in grand style, said the empress to the trembling sisters. You've proved beyond a doubt that everybody in our court, and even in our imperial city, is basically dishonest, except for one small child. Should you be rewarded for heroism or executed for treason? Neither, please, your mercifulness, begged the elder sister. Only let us go in peace in your infinite compassion, and we will never trouble anyone again. We are most heartily sorry for our crime and can only plead for your imperial majesty's indulgence. 
What do you have to say for yourself? asked the Empress, turning to the younger sister. Dear Majesty, I can only say that I didn't expect to get away with our scheme, and now my worst fears have been realized. We have done you wrong, and if you think we deserve death, that's your decision to make. Well spoken, said the Empress. You may deserve death indeed, but you have outwitted our best counselors and even our imperial self, and thus proved yourself too clever to be discarded. Never let it be said that we have not sufficient sense of humor to appreciate the joke of a lifetime on ourselves. We forgive you. We have decided to reward you instead of condemning you. You shall be appointed official dressmakers to the Empress and privy counselors on matters of morality and ethics. Guard, remove their chains. The two dressmakers became the Empress's personal attendants, fashion stylists, and intimate advisors. The Empress learned to trust both their tailoring skills and their needle-sharp perceptions. For the following year's birthday procession, they created a costume of real silk that was widely admired as the most beautiful ever seen. And enjoying the Empress's confidence and a permanent sinecure, they lived happily ever after. Wow, what a nice story. <laughs> so so Barbara, in your um in, in your own words, why are these um why are these uh, goddess mythology stories, these these feminist fairy tales, these new versions of uh of stories with um you know the woman's life not being uh, controlled or saved by the male. What does that do for the female psyche? Why do we need more of these? Well, when I was a kid, I read all of the of the fairy books. I read all the fairy tales there were, and I was kind of offended that little girls never had anything much to do. Uh, I felt that as a little girl, I would like to have a much more lively life or part in life. That these that these girls seem to have. So although I enjoyed reading fairy tales, I just wanted to be, you know, more of a central character, be female. And that's why I thought about writing feminist fairy tales. That's why I named the book what I did. Well, because when we see, when we constantly see stories, when you know, males are the primary characters and, you know, males are the smart ones and, um, you know, males are the leaders. That that affects us in society, does it not? Mm-hmm. Sure. Even, even today uh, in the field of sports, most sports are conducted entirely by men, football, baseball, you know, the, the, the really money-making sports are male-oriented. And most of them are kind of violent, and I think that's rather a bad thing. I pointed that all that out in Family in the Future. Um, I can go through that if you would like at this point. Um, sure. Well, uh, let's let's give it a little bit of a um, of an intro, though. Um, Family in the Future is a chapter from your newest book, uh, Belief and Unbelief, correct? Right. It's Actually, and, it's the final chapter, sort of a wrap-up. 
And this book is currently being printed and should be available in a few weeks, probably in mid-November, from Humanist Press. Okay. This one, this chapter called Family and the Future is kind of a wrap-up of many of the essays that go before, but of course it doesn't go into the details that the other ones do. Anyway, this is what it says. When patriarchal men deplore the decline of family values, they mean their own version of what a family ought to be. Male-headed, male-controlled, a man ruling his wife and children with God-given authority. Such a family might have been decreed by the biblical God, but it was never decreed by nature. Like whales, dolphins, elephants, and other intelligent mammals, humans originally formed their clans and tribes around the matrilineal blood bond, with important lines of descent passing through the females. Offspring tended to stay close to their mothers for life. Robert Brifault says, quote, The maternal totemic clan was by far the most successful form that human association has assumed. It may indeed be said that it has been the only successful one. Social humanity has never succeeded in adequately replacing this primitive bond to which it owes its existence. End quote. Mythological traditions and early artifacts show that during the Stone Age, only mothers were recognized as true parents. The oldest known clan names were those of ancestresses. Men had no part in transmitting the blood bond of kinship. They belonged to their mother's clans. The extended family was held together by women. To some degree, this is still true. Where extended families exist, it is largely the women who maintain bonds between family members. The support group provided by the extended family, living in village-like physical proximity, is far and away the best means of developing good citizens and well-adjusted individuals. To claim parental authority for men, patriarchal societies have tried many modifications, but most have significant faults. In medieval Europe, the church served as a model for patriarchal organizations everywhere and sought always to denigrate the natural authority of mothers, to break up the old pagan-based matrifocal family whenever possible. Up to the 11th century, Catholic priests were allowed to marry until it became evident that family life diverted their attention and most importantly, it diverted their money and property from the church. They willed assets to their children instead of to God. Therefore, a series of papal decretals commanded married clergymen to turn their wives out of their homes, sell their children as slaves, and disinherit their family members in favor of the church. This new rule was supported by the extreme hostility toward marriage, in the writings of the early Christian fathers, and by Jesus' own insistence that no man could be his disciple unless he would renounce and hate, literally hate, that's the word, his own parents, his wife, and his children. Luke 14:26. 
Christian churches are now pretending to have supported family values throughout history, but they were actually opposed to marriage in the family for a long time. Early Christians' insistence on celibacy, virginity, and the sinfulness of sex and the undesirability of motherhood weakened the family structure to the enrichment of a church at the expense of the state. Christianity's gradual conquest of Europe consistently caused destruction of tribal laws of matrilineal inheritance and ecclesiastical takeover of properties formerly controlled by women. To patriarchal thinkers, women and children were not so much interbonded individuals as living raw material for the political power base, breeders, workers, soldiers. Women in patriarchal marriages were, and are, still encouraged to produce many offspring at any cost to their own health and comfort. Even today, the anti-abortion and anti-birth control stance of religious fundamentalists shows a preference for quantity over quality of life, fostering many births of unwanted or unloved children destined to become wards of a state that can't care for them, and against which many will rebel in criminal ways. Even more reprehensible is the lack of birth control in a world whose entire future existence is severely threatened by a hugely dangerous problem of human overpopulation. Though women especially yearn not to see their sons go off to war, to be maimed or killed, some of the most sexist thinkers have had the temerity to blame even the patriarchal phenomenon of war on women. The pejorative term momism was introduced by Philip Wiley in his Generation of Vipers, which actually claimed that the root cause of World War II and all other wars was the heartless greed of mothers, the moms who demanded that their sons fight wars to win them a more luxurious lifestyle. The truth is that for centuries, older men have been luring or coercing coercing sons away from their homes and sending them into battle to increase the power of the old boys' club, to kill off younger and more virile rivals, and to erode the power of women. War is a phenomenon of male-dominated societies, not of the ancient female-oriented ones that showed more respect for the living. A truly humane civilization would have cultural taboos against war, as strong as our present taboos against cannibalizing the dead. It makes no sense to respect a dead body more than a live one, it makes even less sense to neglect that vital blood bond that mothers feel in their very cores. That is the basic family value that deserves much more consideration than the patriarchal idea of what family values are. It must be said repeatedly, however, that hostility to patriarchal values does not mean pitting all women against all men. It is not a matter of individual against individual. Certainly, many modern men embrace the pre-Christian vision of the family, even if they're not specifically aware of it. They respect women, love their parents and their children, and try to keep peace in the world. 
and certainly many women have been brainwashed into a militant patriarchy. Ignorant men sometimes put down modern feminism as a threat to family structures, claiming that feminist women will mistreat husbands and children. In reality, feminism strives for more emphasis on the family rather than less, and more general recognition of the vital central role of motherhood. Patriarchal men express fear that women's acquisition of power will impel them to behave with the same abusive contempt that many men have used toward females. But women don't strive for the kinds of hierarchies that men like, with their authoritative tendency to control with fear and violence. Women prefer consensus and voluntary cooperation based on bonds of affection and personal responsibility. Like all female mammals, women are genetically programmed to care for creatures weaker than themselves. Left to follow natural inclinations, women tend to establish stable communities. The real cause of decline of the family is patriarchal thinking, not feminism. When women cease to be respected for their creative, nurturing behaviors, the family fails to uphold the society of which it is the primary root. Today, with more than half of U.S. marriages ending in divorce, it's obvious that men and women need better training in how to get along with one another. Much of that training should actively reject former sexist attitudes that foster contempt for women. Men need to be taught to be good lovers, tolerant husbands, and kind fathers. In many ways, the exact opposite of the training given them in a culture of aggression, violence, and authoritarian conceit. The human family is essential to the development of a humane civilization, and women are the foundation of the family. Let that be recognized, and we may be able to take a few steps out of the barbarism that patriarchy has foisted upon us. To that end, let us imagine. Imagine a world in which no child is ever born unwanted or unloved because every pregnancy carried to term is the result of conscious planning and preparation. Every baby comes into the world welcomed by the community whose members may help the mother raise her child with gentle nurture and teaching. Imagine a world where personal or collective violence is not considered a valid way of solving problems. Television and films don't glorify acts of violence. They are considered ugly. On the other hand, sensuality is considered highly entertaining and may be shown explicitly even to children so they may grow up well-trained to love. Imagine a world in which there are no father-headed families or desperately striving single mothers, but cooperative groups who help each other raise children, care for the sick and aged, and do the work of the community, each according to his or her capabilities. Both men and women understand the need for good parenting, and every person honors his or her birth-giving mother for a lifetime. Biological fathers also receive respect if they play an active and useful part in the child's upbringing. 
but mere begetting is seen at less, as less important than the complex biology of mothering. Imagine a world in which people learn to help each other as, as naturally as now they learn to compete. A world where games are cooperative rather than aggressive, where common courtesy is extended to all without discrimination and invidious comparisons are not made between one human function and another. For example, a trash collector or a farm laborer is recognized as being just as essential to the welfare of the community as a white-collar desk jockey, if not more so. Imagine a world in which the sentient lives of animals are as much respected as the lives of humans and no animal is ever willfully hurt or damaged. Killing of domestic animals for meat must be carried out in a quick, clean, painless manner, and no wild animals are hunted. People don't wear natural fur coats or ornaments of ivory, tortoise shell, or any other product of wild animal slaughter. People are trained from infancy to care for their pets with competence and kindness to make their lives happy and their deaths free from suffering. Imagine a world in which people also are allowed to die without suffering, where the terminally ill may plan a painless suicide whenever they wish it. Doctors automatically provide pain-free lethal drugs to any terminally ill person of sound mind who requests them, and family members support the decision. Like birth giving, dying is viewed as an individual choice to be respected by others who are obligated to provide help when needed. Imagine a world in which people generally want for each other what mothers generally want for their children, a minimum of suffering and a maximum of enjoyment with the satisfactions of being youthful and the fulfillment of love. Creativity and playfulness are encouraged. Sound scientific education is universally provided. Trust and helpfulness are maintained. And deliberately making someone unhappy is considered a primary sin. Imagine a world where people are not greedy or envious because everyone has enough to live comfortably and no one has too much or too little. Acquisitiveness and conspicuous consumption are not admired, but rather viewed as bad manners. People work hard, but those who can't work, the sick, the elderly, and the very young, are supported. Imagine a world in which there is no punitive, demanding God, but only a goddess image representing the collective forces of nature, revered as a cultural symbol of human awe, in the face of nature's intricacy and beauty. Such a goddess is not in any sense transcendent, but imminent in the human spirit, especially the spirit of motherhood, and supportive of ongoing scientific investigation of her many mysteries. Imagine a world in which there is peace on earth and men's goodwill toward women. It was known long ago in some parts of this planet. Will it ever be known again? As we seek roots toward a kinder, gentler future, the new feminism seems to be a hopeful signpost. 
In societies where women created most of the ethical and moral codes, people were usually more peaceable, contented, cooperative, and better supported by their kinship structures. Mothers' natural desire to promote the health and happiness of their children seems to have been reflected in the social rules formulated by matrifocal societies, whereas patriarchies like our own have engendered many oppressive restrictions aggressively imposed by violence or cruelty. Any television viewer or moviegoer knows how much attention our culture gives to violent behavior patterns, including war, murder, assault, rape, and so-called heroic shoot-em-ups. Media moguls like to say this is what the public demands, demands. But human children, like apes, tend to imitate whatever they see without passing it through any moral filter. When cruelty is the visual input, behavioral output may copy it. Most women disprove the media mogul's contention by disliking the violence that masquerades as entertainment, just as most women disagree with the he-man contention that slaughtering wild animals is fun or that real manhood should somehow involve physical abuse, either given or taken. There are indications that women are beginning to get in touch with their own fundamental nature in ways that have been forbidden to them by their patriarchal culture. There is a fast-spreading tendency among women to reject remote, violent male deities with their crusades, witch hunts, inquisitions, and battlefield invocations. Now that the doleful history of religious sexism has made it clear that the God created in the image of man has promoted more cruelty than any other single cause. The resurgence or rehabilitation of a goddess image to which men as well as women can relate in positive ways may show the way to a wiser future where human beings may finally live free of prejudice, exploitation, and violence, where women and children may safely walk any street in any city at any time of day or night, and no one suffers harassment or discrimination on the job or at home, where no child is born unwanted, unloved, or neglected. Mother Earth desperately needs more quality and less quantity of human life and she needs it soon, or she may run out of all the things we need to sustain us, water, food, oil, minerals, and other resources. Let us hope that, as one of her brainier species, we may have brains enough to bring about proper usage of ourselves and our resources before we allow ourselves to destroy our home. Well said. So all of these imaginings, these are our new stories, you know? Yes, um, yes they are. You know, our our new normal. Um, so, Barbara, the con job, you know, that, that we have all been living under, uh, under patriarchy, this, this, what we, these abominations that we just accept as normal, do you lay it at the feet primarily of Christianity? Were they the ones that uh, are responsible for turning everything on its head and 
writing the new stories that um, you know have have put us in, in such dire straits. Well, it's not only Christianity. Islam is even worse. I mean, they're still in the Middle Ages and mistreat women horribly. Uh, I think all three of the so-called Abrahamic religions have been very hard on women, and it's time that we outgrew them all because, after all, they are childish lies for the most part, and people are still being brought up having to believe in them literally, which is ridiculous. Um, It doesn't make any sense in the world that we have today. We really have to get rid of these untruths that we're being fed as capital T truth. And we have to look around and see what our what nature really needs from us and what we need from nature. So what how would you say they accomplished it? I mean, was it just over a long period of time and maybe it was different and you know, in different places, but how did they how did they take what was normal and shift things to their you know to their advantage? How did the old stories disappear? Um, I mean, a lot of us know about the Maria Gim Buddhist theories. I, I wonder if you have have your own. Well, in the chapter entitled "Blood" in my in Man Made God, I point out that. Ancient people almost universally believed that the living baby is made out of blood because the blood that does not come out during pregnancy, the menstrual blood that ceases, is being kept within the body and forming the baby. Aristotle said every infant is formed of a coagulum of menstrual blood. Blood is the life in in all of these early beliefs. No mention is made of semen. They did not understand fatherhood for a very long time. They did not know that semen had anything to do with it. But once that was discovered, and that seems to have taken place in some areas of the world, not not everywhere, in some areas, maybe about 5,000 B.C., more or less, give or take a thousand years, But once they found out that the men could be fathers, which means they had a right, uh, a way of giving life also, then the father, the gods were no longer just sons and consorts of the goddess. They became fathers. And the father god, as given in the Bible and the Quran and in Christian, Christian belief, has succeeded in completely destroying all the mother goddess figures, which were named uh, devils or pagan figures, and they have almost entirely been forgotten. And people like Merlin Stone and Maria Gimbutas and a number of other foremothers have found them again and are presenting them to us in ways that are (laughs) enlightening, to say the least. Well, uh, I know last week when we were reading uh, Charlene Spretnak's uh, pre-patriarchal story of uh, Pandora, for instance, you know, I mean, here we grow up with Pandora's story that, you know, she opens her box and releases all the ills upon mm-hmm. the world, but yet the pre-patriarchal myth, you know, she, un- you know, she 
you know, she's the, uh, you know, the, the great bountiful, you know, she's in, in just the opposite, you know, she she's, you know, Mother Earth herself, you know, giving, uh, you know, all the things to eat and, the, you know, the, the minerals and uh, everything we need to sustain ourselves on the planet. And, you know, we really, I think, have to stop and think how not having that story um, has allowed patriarchy to warp the minds of of humanity for you know for thousands of years and Absolutely. and and then by association it has uh you know put women in such a um it you know such a horrible horrible position uh and you know and and i and i get you know and you just stop and think you know how would life be different if we didn't grow up only, you know, seeing a male God, revering a male God, you know, if the stories, if our stories were different. And, you know, you listen to Fox News, and it's really funny because they're telling stories every day, you know. And mm-hmm. I, and I, I like to sort of, you know, make this relevant because we know the stories, you know. Um, Obama's a socialist, he's Kenyan, now he's, you know, conspiring about Ebola. And, you know, they stored all these conspiracy theories, and these theories, you know, these conspiracy theories are like these myths. They're like stories, and they they sort of take on a life of their own, and before you know it, people believe them, and it affects how they think and how they live their lives. This is no different. Um, you know, I I think that's why I'm trying to get across to listeners um, that it's so important that we, um, we women especially, we embrace new stories. And I wonder what you think about, um, do you see anything wrong with taking, say, Bible stories and rewriting them or taking patriarchal myths and rewriting them? Is there anything wrong with us doing that because after all, I mean, the Bible was just written by men. I mean, I, I don't think any of our listeners believe it was really the Word of God. Oh, I hardly think so. But I think we need to return to the original stories. The story of Pandora is obvious for the name, her name, which is means literally all giver, the giver of everything. And if you look up the story of Eve, the original story of Eve, she, too, was an all-giver, a mother goddess, the beginning of all life. Her name, Eva, Ewa, all the, all the versions of it in antiquity, referred to the original creative mother who gave birth to everything. And, of course, patriarchy turned her into a very Pandora-like original sinner, she was the one who brought sin into the world. And the early church fathers were may completely opposed to the very idea of Eve. She was responsible for everything. People died. Death was brought into the world because of Eve. All women were responsible. All women were daughters of Eve and so on. And the things they said about women as a result were just so horrendous. So I think the you need to return to the originals. I don't think rewriting the stories is really much help because those who have revised the Bible in some of the newer versions 
have done some of that, trying to get rid of some of the really ugly stuff. You know, the the Old Testament God who is such a monster and didn't really mean it when he said, thou shalt not kill, because over he goes on and on telling, thou shalt kill thousands here and 10,000 there, and on and on, slaughters, slaughter after slaughter. Um, and they have taken out some of the bad stuff and, and pretended that it wasn't really supposed to be there, which is silly, but that's the way they're doing it, trying to make the Bible more palatable. Rewriting is not really going to do it. I think we need to know, because the, thing, the, the original stories came right out of the human subconscious. They're, they're part of the way we think normally as animals, the animals we are. And I, we need to go back to that. And I think Merlin Stone was one who really did point the way, and Maria Gimbutas, of course. And many others uh, have gone back and brought back some of these tales for us. And in my Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, there are thousands, literally thousands of examples of the old stories and their, the way they were revised by patriarchy. We need to look backward in order to look forward, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. So, um, I mean, I know we didn't plan to talk about this, so it's, if it's not fresh in your mind, we'll move on. But talk about the, uh, if, if you can, you know, the, the myth of the garden and, and Eve. What do you think, what was, the, what was the original story saying? You know, what was the apple and the tree and the snake? Well, let me turn to the right page in Man-Made God, and I will go into that. Uh, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a chapter in there called Who Was Eve? And here it is. Shall I just read? Um sure, if it's not too long or maybe just excerpts out of it. Uh, a little bit anyway. For some 1400 to 2500 years, Millions of Christians, Jews, and Muslims have been absolutely convinced that Eve was the first woman, the mother of the human race, only because Old Testament writers said so. It was believed that those writers had been informed by God, and God couldn't possibly tell a lie. But, of course, scholars know now that the Old Testament contains innumerable lies, mistakes, contradictions, and bits of plagiarism. For the writers were not really creative authors. They were copiers and collectors of earlier texts, which they often garbled or misunderstood. They didn't create their own unique creation myth. They adapted it from many earlier sources. The book of Genesis consists of at least three different narratives, rather awkwardly intertwined, giving two mutually contradictory versions of the same story, in its first and second chapters. In the first version, God creates male and female together. In the second, God creates Adam first and then arranges for Adam to give birth to Eve. So Adam becomes the mother figure. This male birth-giving story was specifically designed by a patriarchal revisionist to give man the same lifelong authority over woman 
that used to be held by a mother over her child. The writer adapted an old pre-patriarchal notion that mothers made their children's flesh from their own intrauterine blood and their children's bones from their own ribs. An ancient name for the Sumerian goddess of childbirth was Nintai, meaning both lady of the rib and lady of life. In early Mesopotamian creation myths, the first man was produced from the first woman's rib, not the other way around. According to Babylonian scriptures, the name of the first man was Adamu, meaning bloody clay, recalling a conception charm widely used by women of antiquity. They believed that they could conceive by making a clay image of a baby and anointing it with menstrual blood, which was generally viewed as the mysterious elixir of life. Thus, the goal was to be accomplished by sympathetic magic, the like-begets-like kind of charm that humans have always trusted to get results. Through the centuries, the true bond of relationship has been viewed as blood because in antiquity, the only perceived blood bond was between mothers and child. Modern translators usually give the meaning of Adam as red earth to conceal its original significance, bloody clay. In northern Babylonia, Eve was known as the Divine Lady of Eden, or Goddess of the Tree of Life, recalling the Hebrew worship of the tree goddess Asherah. One of her biblical titles, Mother of All Living, Genesis 3.20, was a common Middle Eastern name for the great goddess who brought forth all things from her own blood. In one centuries before, mother, before father's gods were envisioned. Biblical writers may have heard about the goddess's paradise garden called Haden in the sacred literature of Persia. They almost certainly knew of Nin Eva, Holy Lady Eve, after whom the Assyrians named their capital city. Assyrian scriptures also called her Mother Womb, the creatress who made the first human beings out of clay, male and female together, as in the first version of the Genesis myth. Farther east can be found one of the tantric names of the mother of all living, Adita Eva, the very beginning, which may even date back as far as the Indus Valley civilization of the third millennium BCE. Biblical writers knew the Canaanite, Hittite, and Aramaic names of this mother of all living, Hawa or Hava, or Heva. In Hebrew, her name was written He-Va-He, or H-W-H in Latin letters E-V-E, a word of several meanings including life, woman, a matrilineal blood kinship group, and the wisdom of the serpent. The root of that dread unpronounceable name of God, the taboo tetragrammaton, that no one but a high priest could speak, and that only once a year, was exactly the same as the name of Eve, He Vau He. With the addition of Yod, it became the magical four-letter word that God was supposed to have used to bring all things into being by the power of his own name, 
Y-H-W-H, anglicized as Yahweh or Jehovah. But transposed into Latin letters, curiously enough, the Tetragrammaton says simply, I, Eve. <laughs> wow. There are precedents in ancient literature suggesting that Eve, not Yahweh, was the creator. Gnostic Christian scriptures declare that Adam was created by the power of Eve's word, not God's. She said, quote, Adam, live, rise up upon the earth. And he rose and opened his eyes on the world. When he saw her, he said, You will be called the mother of the living because you are the one who gave me life. End quote. Gnostic scriptures also said that Jehovah himself was Eve's child, for she existed before the gods and gave birth to them all. She gave Jehovah some of her creative powers, but then he became arrogant and forgot that she was his elder and superior. And I quote, He was even ignorant of his own mother. It was because he was foolish and ignorant of his mother that he said, I am God, there is none beside me. Gnostic texts often depict the creator God as an arrogant upstart, reprimanded and punished by a feminine power much older and greater than himself. Uh, the Canaan, you see, you have to go into these other scriptures in order to right. find out these stories. Yeah, so the they're, they're buried. Um, they're, they're, they're you know, buried and you have to uh, put the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. But they're still there. I mean, you you can look, you can read these things, look them up. Here's another comment. A Canaanite icon, still extant, shows the primal goddess in the act of creating the first man, while her totem serpent twines behind her in her sacred fruit tree. From deliberate misrepresentation of such icons, the Genesis story was cobbled together. The Bible doesn't say what Eve's fruit was, not an apple. But later European commentators assumed it was an apple because European myths credited the Pyron goddess with growing apples of wisdom and immortality, or Mm. knowledge and life, in her sacred garden. Celtic heroes went to the paradise of Avalon, which means apple land, Norsemen used to bury apples with the dead as a charm for a blessed afterlife. And then it goes on to the meaning of the serpent, which stood for her wisdom, and the, the tree symbol, and so this it's ever so much more. Yeah, yeah, it's and and this is in your man-made God book, and and maybe us yes. uh, maybe a little bit in your myths and secrets too, women's myths and secrets. Yeah, there's an article on Eve in uh, Myths and Secrets. So, well, you know, this this has made me think about Lilith. You know, we always hear about Lilith was really Adam's first wife, and uh, you know, you know, we just sort of we hear that you know she refused to lay under him, and then she becomes demonized, and she's you know the the child eater and all of that. Um, what's what's the real story on Lilith? Well, she she is in the Apocrypha, of course. Uh, the very end of Man-Made God has an article called Lilith's Rant, which I have done on several occasions. It's a dialogue between God and Lilith. 
and it's meant to be kind of funny, but also... Do, do you have the book? No, I actually don't have that one. Um, I'm oh, going to have to get a copy. You you could read the part of God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. I, I Well, you know, maybe we'll do it another time, um, and you know, when we well, both have a copy. I'll give you a couple, just a few paragraphs. It's not terribly long, but it's funny. Um, Lilith speaks. Hey there, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, Allah, whatever pseudonym you're using these days. It's me, Lilith, the one you dethroned and tried to marry off to that jerk Adam, that clod who never even learned how to make love properly. Fat lot of good he must have been to wife number two, poor old Eve. I'm back, Buster, and I've been watching you for a couple of millennia now. You've got a lot to answer for. You've been screwing up right, left, and diagonally. God speaks. Why, Lilith, what are you doing here? My father, my followers turned you into a demon long ago. You have no right to come back. Lilith, I have more right than a Johnny-come-lately like you, sport. You know perfectly well that I was queen of heaven back there in Sumer and Akkad thousands of years before anybody heard of you. As for the demon thing, all that night hag nonsense and pretending that I took away men's souls in wet dreams, why, you know perfectly well, that was just a ploy to make guys fear their own physiology and that of women even more. Do you know how much human agony your miserable anti-sex campaigns have caused? (laughs) God. Well, agony is good. The more they suffer with patience on earth, the better I like them and reward them in the afterlife. I made that clear back there in the story of Job, if you'll remember. Lilith, afterlife, is it? A promise you never have to make good on. Very convenient, yeah. And let me tell you, those Bible stories made nothing clear. They caused so much confusion, contradiction, and misinterpretation that folks have never stopped fighting over them. They are the fuzziest mess of myths ever put together, and you know it. You'd think a god pretending to be omnipotent would at least be able to write a comprehensible set of instructions for whatever (laughs) he wants people to do. But you, far from it. Your scriptures created more chaos than any other single cause. And as for Job, you know he wasn't rewarded in any afterlife. He got over his ills and tragedies right here on earth. You know who didn't get over them? All of Job's innocent relatives and servants and animals, not that's who, all murdered by you, just so you could win a stupid bet. God, it wasn't a stupid bet. It was intended to prove that faith in me is a human's most important quality. Lilith, yeah, and just what do you think faith in you consists of? Believing that you exist? Or believing that you mean well but can't make it stick? Or believing that you are scary and meaner than a junkyard dog? As I recall, you order you like to order people to fear you. And this goes on and on. I don't know how much <laughs> I love it. That boy, that would make a wonderful um a wonderful play. Yeah, I you I, know, has has anyone ever done it? Oh yes. I've done it on the uh, uh uni- Unitarian radio with a with a guy taking the the role of God. It, it's very funny, actually. It oh, I out, love it. 
I thought you had read Man-Made God. I, no, I no, I never did actually get uh, a copy of that, but uh, I'm oh. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to get one. Um, you know, I I I I'm just imagining I, I mean when when you think about all we're going through right now, you know, as women are trying to, you know, hold on to, you know, b- their birth control, fight personhood amendments, you know, fight to keep their right to abortions. What it must have been like to have been a goddess revering person or a priestess back then when, you know, everything that that you knew, you know, the, the whole mother goddess culture was being obliterated and, you know, this this violence and destruction and this oppression was suddenly you know taking you know taking the place of everything you knew i i can't even imagine what that must have been like um you know for cultures and and for women well it didn't happen in in a huge amount in any one person's lifetime this took a very long time it took many centuries and the the whole thing it just crept along by increments i mean even though even though Hebrews in the Middle East had a patriarchal religion, uh, the great Roman and Greek empires were still very much into worshiping goddesses and Egypt and so forth. Um, it was not until the time of Constantine in the 4th century that Christianity finally became the official religion of Europe. And even then, they had to wage constant crusades against the pagans throughout all of Europe and all the way up to the 14th century there were still the the word pagan means country person farmer the peasants were still worshipping their ancestral gods and goddesses for a very long time which is why the church was forever sending soldiers out there to to slaughter them saying they were worshipping devils you know this is it's a very gradual process and yeah, and no, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. People probably did not realize what was really happening, just like people today don't realize what's happening when fundamentalism is creeping up on them, or Islam, for that matter. Uh, True, and and we have to remember that there was no mass communication then either. So. Right. Um, I mean, we can at least, you know, flip on the Internet or turn on the television and get some sense of it, but look how many people are still misinformed today. So imagine imagine back then. Um, In Islam, uh, women are not educated. Many women are kept away from education, can't read, can't write, have no idea what's in the literature. And this was certainly true of Europeans all the way up to... Early, 19, early late 1800s, which is the first time when ordinary people were able to get an education. Very few people were educated. I mean, illiteracy was, was the norm in right. Europe for most of its centuries. And even in the 18th and 19th centuries, anthropologists have found cultures that are still matriarchal, matrilineal, and don't understand fatherhood. They have found these things in Australia, the South Pacific, yeah. uh, various little pockets of, you know, sort of Stone Age cultures. They didn't really understand that men created children. They thought women created children. 
with right. their particular magic, with their blood. Right, right. So, you know, it's it's hardly a an overnight thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and when things creep up on you like that, you know, it's sort of that creep you, you know, it, it it's, uh, you, it, it's, it sneaks up on you. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. quite frankly, and and it's there, uh, there before you know it. Um, yeah, one and, generation and after another, and one generation may have a little bit of an idea about the new ideas, and then the next generation a little bit more, and so forth. And you know, cultures evolve, just like everything else. Right. And as they evolve, they change. Are you are you not amazed though in this day and age when so many people are literate that they're able to keep the con going though? Absolutely, and I think <clears throat> it's because the those who are fundamentalist inclined uh, really bear down hard on their children to keep them from studying. Well, science or evolution or literature that that talks about these things, you know, they're, they're very, yeah. very uh, afraid of even doubting because they think they might be punished for doubting. Yeah. So it's fear I, I mean, I, that... Yeah, I, I mean, I know in my own family, I mean, I have evangelical family still in Louisiana and you know when they heard I was into this I mean they won't even open my books you know <laughs> so it's so it's so it's not like you can even try to you know get them to use critical thinking or plant any seeds because they they won't even yep. look <laughs> of course they're afraid to look yeah because they they think that their lives their futures their afterlives everything depends on having faith. And if they lose their faith, it's all going to go away. So, you know, the the fairy tale upholds them, and they're afraid to to lose it. Right. And therefore, they won't read me, they won't read Merlin Stone, they won't read Sam Harris, they won't read uh, Richard, what's his name, The, the evolutionist. Yeah, the one who passed away. Yeah. Christopher Hitchens. Yes. There there have been so many good atheist books on the bestseller list in the past decade, and these people are just terrified of reading them or even thinking about them. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I I guess, though, um, I I know you're an atheist, and and, and I, I I consider myself a goddess advocate. You know, I mean, I look at goddesses, you know, depending on the day, sometimes it's deity, sometimes it's archetype, sometimes it's ideal, sometimes it's all a jumble of all three. And, um, I, you know, and I guess there's a part of me that's afraid to or doesn't want to um, totally divorce myself from the idea that there's someone out there that when things really get hard, you know, I can pray to, or when something, uh, you know, the things that'll happen that that seem to have no logical explanation, and you feel like maybe there was some divine will involved. Was it hard for you to make that shift? I mean, how did you overcome, or were you always an atheist? I mean, did you have to overcome those sorts of feelings like I've just described? Well, I'm I'm a goddess advocate also. 
But I do not regard goddess as a supernatural creature. I regard goddess as a, a collective term for all of nature, all that is, all that lives. This, this to me, is goddess. Right. And I, right. it doesn't really refer to any supernatural ears that can listen to my voice or anything like that. Um, actually, I, t- I tell this story in Man-Made God also. I turned against the Judeo-Christian God at a very, very young age when um, I was grieving terribly for my beloved dog who had just died. And uh, the minister came around to talk to my mother, and I asked him to tell me about how I'd meet my dog in heaven. And he said, I wouldn't meet my dog in heaven because dogs don't have souls and they don't go to heaven. I would meet all my relatives instead. And so I thought, tried to negotiate. I said I could be willing to trade my dog for a couple of aunts and uncles if they, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me have my dog. <laughs> and he said, no, God won't do that. And I was just devastated. I said, I ran away crying. I said, God is mean. I don't want to mm-hmm. go to his heaven. And my mother was very embarrassed, but I just sort of threw a tantrum about that. And, and that then, was the end for you? Well, sort of. Uh, I didn't like that minister ever since, and I didn't like going to the Sunday school. Um, the Sunday school had a great big, very gory crucifixion picture painting, and I was told, when I first saw that painting, I cried. I, I thought, what, what is this awful bit? Why is this person being tortured like this? And they told me that he was paying for my sins, and I was sure I had never done anything that bad. Mm-hmm. I didn't like being told otherwise. Yeah. And you know, and and I thought, a father did this to his son. What kind of a father is that? You know, this is yeah. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, when it I was. A- well, you know, he comes across as kind of a sociopath or a, or a schizophrenic or something. Who'd want Absolutely. him for a, a father or a neighbor, much less a god, you know? <laughs> oh, terrible. And they're supposed to be a loving god and does, does this. I mean, he was supposed to be all-powerful, so if he wanted to forgive people, he could certainly do it. Yeah. You know, nobody had to die or be tortured to death to make this happen. Yeah, Why was he accepting human sacrifice? That's barbaric. Right, and, right. And then when I, as a teenager, I read the Bible all the way through, every page, and that, that really f- did it for me because the God depicted in the Bible is so awful right, and so cruel. And I well, thought, well, speaking of that, Barbara, I was surprised about this. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'll admit I've never read the book cover to cover the Bible, but this Luke verse where Jesus says uh, that no man could be his disciple unless he would renounce and hate his own parents, wife, and children. I didn't know Jesus said stuff like that. Oh, he did. He also said slavery is perfectly okay, and if your slave misbehaves, you have a right to beat him with many stripes. Wow. That's Those are the literal words. Wow. So in in the South, when when uh, the planters had slaves back in the 1800s, they would point out these passages in the Bible where God says condones slavery, and says that slaves may be beaten, 
and they were, of course. Yes, God yeah. says that you can justify anything. Well, yep. you know, um, going back to what you were telling about your uh, your experiences, you know, as a teenager and stuff, uh, just a few years ago, I was taking some some interesting Kabbalah classes, and they assigned me this teacher, and I, I made some comment about, you know, I had injured my shoulder, and uh, I was worried that I was going to end up having to have surgery, and uh, and it, they actually told me that if I, well, that happened because I didn't tithe enough, yeah. and 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 you know, and that was the end for me. Well, of course, they also said Lilith was the head of Satan's army, but. Uh, and, you know those those you know they would say stuff like that every now and again, and I just thought this fear-based stuff is just mm-hmm. crazy. I mean, you know, they'll have a couple little shreds of of good things. You know, I was attracted to Kabbalah because they they seemed to say that you know w- women were more superior spiritually. Um, but it, it's like this emanation theology. You know, the light comes comes down into the man, and he disseminates it into the tabernacle. It's as if they've based their whole spirituality on our the you know how our genitals are made in a way. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I know. And, and I said that to my teacher, and and it, and he looked at me like he had you know nobody I guess had ever you know, said anything like that to him before. He looked perplexed. Um, but it was so obvious to me. You know, they're talking about a penis and a vagina, you know. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's just um, the crazy stuff we'll, we're willing to believe. Um, you know, the stories. Next time, you ask them how they have ascertained that God has a penis. <laughs> <laughs> because if he doesn't, have a penis or testosterone and other, uh, you know, if he doesn't have a physical body, he can't be male. Right, right. In order to be male, you have to have a penis and you have to have the right kinds of hormones. So it means you have to have a physical body. So where is this physical body? Right. Certainly not out in space, not up in the sky, not anywhere where you could find it. Uh, I mean, the the whole idea is just silly. Yeah, yeah, when really, really. Um well, well well let me just ask you one other personal question if if you feel comfortable answering it. Have you never had one of these um experiences that seem to be to come from God goddess, you know, something bigger than yourself? I mean, did anything like that ever, you know, keep you no, skeptical? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, I've had quite a number of visions. And I talk about them in my autobiography, The Skeptical Feminist. Uh, As a teenager, when I was about 13 or so, I had a a very extraordinary goddess uh, vision, which has stayed with me ever since. I've had... It's very easy. I'm very visually oriented, and it's very easy for me to see something. If I have a fever, for example, I will hallucinate. And I know that it's a hallucination because I because I've had it before. Um, some people are prone to see things that aren't there, and some people are not. And it depends on your physiology, I think. But I am vision prone, and I have had a number of them, and I expect to have more. I know them to be unreal. I know them to be products of my imagination, but they're clear, three-dimensional all the colors in place. They last about, oh, three or four minutes. 
and then they go away. So you just chalk it up to hallucination. Yeah, well, that's what a vision is. Right, right. You see something that isn't there. That That's a hallucination. Right, right. Or right. It, actually, it's kind of like having a dream while you're still awake. Mm-hmm, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 and I can understand that, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a skeptical Virgo, and I'm not prone to jump at things being, you know, divinely inspired. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes there have been, th- you know, things would manifest on my altar that out of the blue, you know. And mm-hmm. I know that sounds crazy, and if somebody else told me, I wouldn't honestly believe it. Or you, you get these incredible coincidences that feel like there's got to be more to it. You know, what are the odds kind of a thing. And I don't know, you just, you know, you sometimes wonder if there isn't some sort of, you know, cosmic thing at play sometimes that's bigger than yourself. I think what's bigger than yourself, that is your conscious self, is your unconscious self. And uh, many people throughout the world have believed that everything they see in a dream is real, and they wake up from the dream, and then they t- describe it as an actual experience. The um, Australian Aborigines, for example, were very prone to claim many lifetimes because they did all these other things in their dreams and told them about it, made stories out of them. I think people are more visionary than is usually admitted and I think most people who are so impressed by their own visions, whatever they may be, that they think, oh, gee, this, this must be something magical and wonderful, and I am in touch with the universe and so forth. And that's um, their ego, <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's, it's a, the ego takes over when yeah. you have one of these experiences and tells you that, that this is something unique and wonderful. I don't think it's all that unique. I think many people have had visions. Practically all of the saints and and holy people who are worshipped today have started out having visions. I mean, look at St. Teresa, St. Francis. If If you see, for example, I once saw a glowing, a woman in a glowing white robe floating in the sky above the ocean. I was sitting on a beach looking out to sea. And there she was, hovering over the ocean. Very clear, very clear. Um, And if I had been a Catholic, I would say, yes, I had a vision of the Virgin, because that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But since I was not a Catholic, I said, no, this is just an illusion. And I've had them before. And I think it's very easy to have these illusions, because we have so many records of them. So many people... And we want to believe, too, you know. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, but but what about, you know, unless it's, you know, mass hallucination, when more than one person sees, like Lourdes or some of these other, um, you know, apparitions of Our Lady, you, 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 you can just chalk that up to mass hallucination? Yeah, you can chalk it up to conditioning, too. Yeah. A lot of people are told what they're supposed to see, so they see it. Right, 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 right. 
Well, you know, I don't want to uh, run out of time here. You had a, another piece you thought uh, listeners might like to uh, hear uh, on sexism from your uh, man-made oh. guidebook. No, that 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 was just a suggestion for the. It's a long, fairly long one. If I read that, it'll take forever. Oh, okay, uh. <laughs> okay, I, I understand. Well, um, is there anything you you want to share with listeners that we that we haven't really uh, chatted about? You know, uh, the importance of myths or fairy tales or any of the stuff we've been talking about. How much more time do we have? We have about twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. Well, I can read some from sexism. Um, it probably won't. La- it, it probably will be more than twenty minutes, but I'll give you a little sample. Or let me. Okay. Well, let me just ask you this first, um, because I haven't actually had the time to read the feminist fairy tales. Would there, uh, like the story of, of Cinderhill or Barbie doll, or uh, the morals of those? Uh, those tales, or, or or would they be interesting? You think um, for listeners? Well, Barbie doll is a fairly short one, but it's not taken from an ancient fairy tale. It's more or less modern, based on Barbie. <laughs> well, that's okay though, because I I I I don't know. I guess I'm I feel inclined uh, to encourage more women to do this kind of thing. <laughs> Um, okay, you know, well, to, I'll read that one then. Okay. Uh, let's see. The intro says, The ever-popular, impossible-shaped Barbie and her numerous clones surely have helped train American girls to be forever dissatisfied with themselves and to think of the ideal female form as one that almost no female ever achieves. Barbie is the unattainable ideal produced by the latter half of the 20th century. In other times, women's self-image has been mocked by the 18-inch waist of the hoop skirt era, the huge padded rear of the bustle, the Chinese bound foot and its western approximation, the high heel, the romantic painter's fat nudes in times when most women suffered from malnutrition, and even the impossibly parthenogenic medieval Virgin Mary, whose mother, whose maternal purity remained always unreachable by any mortal woman. We still have adolescent girls falling victims to anorexia and other eating disorders, partially because they despise themselves for not being more like Barbie. At the same time, Barbie has become a symbol of the beautiful bimbo with the overstuffed closet and the empty plastic head. Similarly, G.I. Joe symbolizes mindless, ceaseless military aggression in a world that needs peace above all. Together, these dolls say a lot about our culture, and the messages are not lost on our children. Once upon a time... There was a toy shop where the dolls came to life at night after dark. A half-forgotten genius named Mickey Mouse had taught them long ago to open the seals on their boxes and emerge for the nightly revels, and then reseal themselves in at the first sign of dawn. Children sometimes noticed that the dolls bought in this shop looked a bit worn, but their elders seldom paid attention. 
Aside from the baby dolls, who did nothing but cry and wet and were excessively boring, by far the most popular doll in the shop was Barbie doll. She looked grown up enough to have lived about 18 human years, and she wore costumes enough to have lived about 18 human lifetimes. She was a fashion model, rock star, astronaut, cheerleader, nurse, beach bunny, princess, showgirl, artist, ballerina, actress, dream date, prom queen, gymnast, and beauty contest winner of at least 11 different nationalities. She had more clothes than any other doll, and that put her at the top of the toy shop social order. Barbie doll had nothing but contempt for the human females, both large and small, who came to the shop. Not one of them ever even approached her own perfect proportions. Their waists were too wide, their busts were too small or droopy, their feet were monstrously huge. Barbie doll showed them the proportions they should desire, but never achieve, so they could learn to despise their own appearance. She dreaded the day when some loutish adolescent would buy her and take her away from the shop where she was queen. Barbie doll had several female associates whose proportions were exactly like hers, and also a male consort named Ken doll. <laughs> he looked a bit more like a human being in a prep school sort of way. Ken doll's only mission in life was to escort Barbie doll in her various roles and activities, so he was allowed to wear tuxedos, swimsuits, and ethnic or theatrical costumes, but never work clothes. He never worked. He looked down particularly on those humans who had to scrimp and save money so that they earned by working in order to buy him. Like Barbie doll, Ken doll was a snob. One night, Barbie doll noticed a new grown-up male doll on the premises. His name was Gijo, and he wasn't interested in female dolls at all. He seemed to care only for uniforms, helmets, guns, grenades, bombs, and other battlefield hardware. He liked to kill enemies and blow things up. He knew nothing of proms, parties, fashions, cruises, or any of the other civilized frivolities that preoccupied Barbie doll and Ken doll. He dwelt only in the all-male, generally working-class milieu of war. Barbie doll found herself more and more fascinated by Guy Joe, especially because he didn't seem affected by her charm. This was a novel experience for Barbie doll. She was used to being the center of attention at all times. She began to see Guy Joe as a challenge to her powers of attraction. Besides, as she remarked to Kendall, he was kind of cute. Kendall didn't think so. He's shorter than you and built like an outhouse, he sniffed. Besides, he's not our sort. He probably doesn't even know how to dance. Wouldn't you be embarrassed if your friends saw you dating an ape like him? I don't think he's quite an ape, Barbie doll said meditatively. He's kind of sexy. Maybe with him I could do things I haven't done before. Maybe, but I'll bet you wouldn't like them, Ken doll grumbled. He was feeling pangs of jealousy because he had never seen Barbie doll cast that speculative look on anyone but him. Gijo is nothing but a crude, 
middle-class stupid grunt without a particle of breeding. I know. Trust me. Oh, I do trust you, Kendall, she said, batting her eyelashes, which were real nylon and generally considered one of her best features. (laughs) But it's always broadening to meet new kinds of people, don't you think? Yes, if you want to become nothing but a broad, Kendall snapped. He didn't often make puns because Barbie doll never caught on to them anyway, but he was fuming. Barbie doll ignored Ken Doll's objections and began to flirt with Gejo. Following her perennial guide, the How to Be Popular advice column for girls, she pretended to be intensely interested in whatever he liked. Consequently, she found herself listening to hours of his monologues about automatic weapons, handguns, assault rifles, ammunition, explosive devices, minefields, barrages, air cover, foxholes, and beachheads. She was severely bored by all this, but she liked watching his eyes light up while he expounded on notable battles and famous generals. The fact that she couldn't understand what he possibly thought so fascinating about all these matters made him seem all the more exotic and unusual. She tried to attract him by becoming less frivolous. She neglected her customary activities. She didn't even talk about going to the mall. She lost interest in pool parties, luncheons, fashion shows, and shopping expeditions. She sometimes forgot to put on her makeup and style her hair properly. Her best friend, Midge, told everybody that Barbie doll was turning into a frump. The next thing you know, Midge said maliciously, she'll be spreading that hourglass waist into a jelly glass. Barbie Doll's conversational skills deteriorated also. She was no longer able to discuss the latest designer jeans or this month's eyeshadow color, Tahitian apricot. Instead, she talked of strikes, counts, and nukes. She let her clothes become shabby and unwashed. Her friends found her boring. Kendall started dating Midge, though his heart wasn't in it. She didn't notice. Gejo seemed to enjoy Barbie Doll's rapt attention. However, on the few occasions when she did some of the talking, he would gaze into space, fiddle with his sidearm, or push his cap over his eyes and go to sleep. Barbie Doll had an uneasy feeling that his interest in her talk was minimal at best. He talked so much about enemies that Barbie Doll thought about them too. One day, in a fit of inspiration, she wrote a poem that she entitled Against the Enemies. Triumphantly, she carried to read it to to Gijo. Listen, she cried, against the enemies. They tell you to hate, those devils to break, but when the war ends, they say, oh, now, wait, we made a mistake. Those devils are friends. And she sat back and waited modestly for his praise, but he only glared at her. Don't you like it, she asked. It tells about enemies. See, it rhymes and everything. <laughs> what kind of stupid k is that? He snarled. What are you, some kind of crazy pinko bleeding heart parlor liberal or something? <laughs> Take your silly poem and get lost. Such unexpected rejection of her first mili- literary inspiration infuriated Barbie Doll, but she tried to smile. 
remembering the how to be popular advice columns recommendation for getting a boyfriend to open up, she inquired about what the column called his personal life goal. What's your personal life goal? she asked. My what? You know, what do you want to be? Your your ultimate ambition. Got no ambitions, said Gijo. Take out the enemy, that's all. But if you could be the kind of person you most admire, what would you be? A hero, I guess. Don't you want to be my hero? Barbie doll answered, fluttering her nylon eyelashes provocatively. Gejo snickered. You don't hand out no medals, he said. You ain't nothing but a dumb broad. How dare you? Barbie doll cried. Her anger welled up and she slapped his face as hard as she could. He grabbed her and shoved her up against the side of his box. Listen, doll, don't try to give me no hard time. I'm pretty sick of your airhead chatter. Broads like you should be seen and not heard. He shook her for emphasis. You're being totally nasty, Barbie doll exclaimed. You don't really like me at all. I like you all right as long as you keep your mouth shut. You talk too much and you don't know nothing about it, anything important. Barbie doll burst into tears. Let go of me, you moron, she yelled. Why did I ever think you make a decent boyfriend? You're a bloody-minded pig with nothing between your ears but plastic explosive. At this, Gajo slapped her face in return and pushed her away. Barbie doll ran off crying. And that was the end of her flirtation with him. She never went near him again. She never spoke of military matters. She returned to Kendall, declaring that he was the escort with whom she shared a true, profound philosophy. Kendall was glad to hear this, although he hadn't been aware that they shared any philosophy, profound or otherwise. One day, one day, Barbie doll asked him, Kendall, are you patriotic? Sure, why not? What's your patriotic personal life goal? <laughs> what any patriotic guy wants, I guess, to have lots of friends, parties, a house with a swimming pool, a condo in the Bahamas, a widescreen TV, a wall-sized stereo, and a three-car garage with a BMW, a Porsche, and a Ferrari. I can relate to that, said Barbie doll. Do you want to be a hero? No. Why not? Heroes are guys who get destroyed. Oh. Presently, Gejo was sold to a small boy who liked to stage battles with real fire and serious mutilations. He tore off one of Gejo's arms and stuck a rice pick through his body, interred him in a plastic body bag, and finally burned him severely in a fireworks explosion. <laughs> he was forcibly retired, a wounded veteran, permanently scarred and half-melted. He spent the rest of his days doing nothing at all in a dirty, jumbled, neglected toy box. Barbie doll and Ken doll were sold to a little girl who loved them, treated them well, and provided them with many new clothes. They lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> so those are, those are funny. God, you got sexism, classism. Um, you have all sorts of stuff in that story, Barbara. It, it's really mm -hmm. funny. <laughs> and and you know how many friends of ours can we see in in these uh, in these characters? I was thinking about the Kardashians. Um, you mm -hmm. know, Barbie doll. Wow. 
Well, we um, we have probably, uh, I guess, maybe about uh, six or eight minutes left. Um, how do you want to How do you want to spend it? Were the, are Were there any excerpts from the sexism or, uh, article you thought might be relevant with everything happening in the news? With the or would you like to talk about the NFL and their domestic violence debacle? Or <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, yeah, the first couple of paragraphs of, of the sexism article go back to some of the early myths that I was recommending people look up. Okay. So I will start with that. Um, and you stop me at any time, whenever you need to. Yeah, if, I'll, if, if you get too close to when we go off the air, I'll, I'll interrupt. Okay. More than any previous group, the followers of the Judeo-Christian God worked assiduously to trivialize, diabolize, or humanize their deities' predecessors and rivals. Bible writers therefore described all the Baals, the gods, of neighboring peoples as various kinds of abominations or demons, and the great mother goddess of the Middle East as a particularly evil one. This goddess was the queen of heaven, referred to in Jeremiah 7.18, sinfully adored by Jeremiah's opponents, and Diana of the Ephesians, quote, whom Asia and all the world worshipeth, according to Acts 19.27. Among her numerous other names were Asherah, Ishtar, Astarte, Esther, and Iostra, whose springtime festival was anglicized as Easter. One of the earlier interpretations of this thousand-named goddess in Sumero-Babylonian was Lilith, whose symbol was the lotus, an ancient sacred icon representing female genitals, birth-giving, and universal creativity. Apocryphal writings converted Lilith into Adam's first wife, who was unsatisfactory because she defied God's order to lie beneath her husband. She mocked Adam's sexual ineptitude and dumped him, and then cursed God and laughed at the angels God sent to punish her. The story claims that she went off to live by the Red Sea, or, that is, the primal sea of blood, mated with so-called demons, i.e. other gods, and gave birth to a hundred children a day. (laughs) This detail establishes Lilith as one of the many incarnations of the great mother goddess. 4,000 years ago, she was known in Sumeria as Lilake, or Belit-Ili. So, after Lilith's defection, the biblical god created a more complacent mate for Adam by the curiously female imitative device of male motherhood, arranging for Adam to give birth to Eve from one of his ribs. There were Gnostic beliefs extant in the early Christian era when Gnosticism was more respected than the fundamentalist or literal type of Christianity, to the effect that the Queen of Heaven, or Mother of All Living, actually created Yahweh and later punished him for arrogantly demanding to be the sole creator. Third century and fourth century Christian zealots wanted the female principle diabolized so her power over Yahweh could be forever denied. So they made woman, Eve, responsible for all the evil in the world, and man, Adam, her relatively innocent victim. St. Paul says, 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was the transgressor, which seems to indicate that the original sin was being deceived. St. Augustine propounded the Church's canonical doctrine of original sin, holding that all persons born of woman are sinful because they are born of woman. Sexual conception and passage through the female body transmit that awful sin of apple-eating to all generations. People eventually forgot the Gnostic idea that Eve and the serpent were the real saviors of the human race, providing the gift of knowledge that God didn't want people to have. People eventually forgot this Gnostic conception of the evil demiurge, God, who blamed all generations for the offense of a remote ancestor. People also forgot to revere the creative wonder of birth-giving. So it was the childbirth, generally recognized as a mother's transcendent joy, even though it hurts, was finally converted by Christian tradition into the manifestation of God's curse on the female sex. God told Eve that she, and by extension all women, must be a husband's slave, and that he, God, would, quote, greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. This scripture was interpreted to mean that God intended to have as intended women to have as many children as possible and that it should pain them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther remarked that if women died of excessive childbearing, it was perfectly all right because God wanted it that way. Mm-hmm. When Dr. James Simpson began relieving women's labor pains with the newly discovered anesthetics during the 19th century, English clergymen raised a great outcry against this sinful opposition to God's will, depriving God of the pleasure he took in listening to women's screams. Yet, when Queen Victoria allowed her doctor to give her chloroform during the birth of her eighth child, the clergymen were silenced. Apparently, a queen was permitted to overrule God. (laughs) Today, many people assume that methods of birth control have been invented only within the last century to relieve women of the unhappy results of too many pregnancies too close together. Actually, birth control has been a part of human culture since at least Neolithic times. In the ancient classical civilizations, women used sponges in the same way that modern women use diaphragms, and abortifacient drugs were not unknown. Some of this lore continued to be passed down secretly among Europe's wise women, and the Inquisition often accused witches of telling their, cli- their clients how to avoid conception. Of course, this accusation was an offense meriting execution. But even in the most primitive cultures, anthropologists have found women seeking ways to limit their reproduction. Patriarchal traditions are notable for strenuous efforts to prevent women from denying sexual favors to men, even to the point of allowing or at least tolerating rape, both within and without marriage. Biblical warriors were directed by their God to rape all the young women in a conquered town and make them into sex slaves or concubines or supernumerary wives, 
so they could beget more and more children. The underlying reason for patriarchal obsession with reproduction was not only that more children made more workers in the fields and households, but that more children guaranteed a greater immortality for the paternal ancestors. People used to believe that men whose memory was worshipped by many descendants would actually become gods in the afterworld. This was the post-mortem favor promised to Abraham by the biblical God when he said, I will make of thee a great nation. Genesis 12:2. Barbara, yet I, another I, way. I, yes. I think we're probably going to have to cut it off there, but you know, okay. hearing you hearing you read all of that, uh I mean, it it just I hate to say it, it, it men would have to be ashamed. You know, I mean, our our evolved uh allies in this uh in in this fight to dissolve patriarchy, they must seriously be ashamed about the sadistic nature of of their ancestor men. <laughs> well, not not all men are sadistic, obviously. Right, um, right, right. I, so I mean, we can't it, make it totally gender specific. There are patriarchal no. religions, women too. Well, yeah. I mean, look at the women who are, you know, uh, continue to, uh, you know, perpetuate female genital mutilation, and you yeah. know, and the and and the women in you know Christianity and Islam that uh, perpetuate the suffering of other women. I mean, yeah, yeah, most definitely. It, it's just incredible hearing you read that stuff. I mean. Um, uh, well, um, we are about uh, out of time, but I want to thank you for uh, coming back on the show. And I do want to mention the titles of your books again. The, the brand new one that's coming out is uh, Belief and Unbelief. I think you said it'll be out in November. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then uh, Man-Made God, that one was uh, out a year or two ago, and obviously from everything you've read, uh, really awesome and uh, totally recommended. And the old stuff, the old stuff is still good. Uh, Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, and uh, I mean, you have so much. I mean, just, um, do you do you have a website? Uh, can people buy no, their but, books? No, but you, you can Google Barbara G. Walker. At, at any point, and it gives you the list of all the books and a lot of reviews and, you know, much a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and the G is important because there's another Barbara Walker and it's not you. <laughs> yeah, oh, there are several. It's, it's not an uncommon name. Okay. Well, we have only about 90 seconds left, so I, I want to say say thank you again, Barbara, for uh, your support of the show and the anthology and, uh, you know, the help you've given me with my books and things. Um, I really do appreciate it, and I so admire you. You are just an incredible role model and foremother, and thank you for everything you're doing out there in the world to help educate the masses. (laughs) Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Okay. Well, good night, and I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Well, listeners, I'm sure you enjoyed uh, tonight uh, with Barbara as much as I did, and uh, we're about out of time. So I want to remind you that uh, next week uh, I'll have with me uh, Lenny Schneer, who is uh, the partner of Merlin Stone, as we finalize our uh, Goddess Mythology and Feminist Fairy Tale Trilogy this month. So thank you so very much uh, for tuning in. Uh, Please spread the word. 
uh, about the trilogy. And uh, remember, if you can, uh, please send a, a donation via PayPal uh, to help keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air. And you can find the, the PayPal buttons I'm talking about uh, by going going to my website at KarenTate.com. Thank you, dear listeners, and good night, and have a wonderful week.